Nicholas Bornois again of CapitalLink. I would like to welcome you uh, to this uh, panel. And I would like to, uh, to repeat uh, what I said earlier, that one of the great things that we have uh, achieved uh, during these 20 years we have been uh, hosting this event is to develop friendships and partnerships with a number of uh, institutions who join us year after year. And uh, Fitch is uh, ratings is one of them. Uh, thank you for your partnership hosting this uh, particular panel, the use of leverage every year. It's uh, always uh, a tremendously interesting topic. Very, and uh, thank you for being with us again. So I will turn over the, the floor to Peter, who is going to introduce our panelists. And again, thank you to all of you, each one of you for being with us today. Very appreciated. Well, thank you, Nicholas. It, it's our pleasure to be here as well. Um, you know, even though it is still remote, you know, I'm, as time goes on, hopefully this will be back in person again. Um, so as Nicholas, you know, started us off, uh, today we're going to be talking about leverage use by closed-end funds. Um, my name, obviously, is Peter Gargiulo. I'm a, I'm a senior analyst in the funds and asset management team uh, within Fitch. Our group assigns ratings to debt and preferred shares issues, issued by closed-end funds regulated under the 40 Act. Um, but also it can be applied outside of the React, and we'll get into that a little bit. Um, and we also do some research in the space, and uh, we've been doing this for panel, as Nicholas said, for multiple years. Uh, so, and it's, of course, my honor to do this for the first time, so uh, glad to be here. Uh, joining me today is, is an excellent panel, uh, and I'll allow them to introduce themselves once I run through uh, their names. Uh, Kim Green, my associate on the funds and asset management team at Fitch. Uh, Mark Coagula from uh, TD Prime Services and Nate Jones from uh, Nuveen. Uh, Kim, why don't you start off and then we'll go through the exact list of Mark and Nate. Introduce yourselves and give, us, give a brief description of your role. Thanks, Peter. So yes, I'm Kim Green. I'm also an analyst at Fitch on the Funds and Asset Manager team, along with Peter. Um, as he said, we assign and maintain ratings for closed-end funds and publish research on the sector. And I've been with the firm for about two years now. Mark? Hi, I'm Mark Qualia. I work at TD Securities in the Prime Services Division. I run the fund finance business. I've been at TD for about seven years, coming this December. And our focus is really on the uh, taxable closed-end funds, as well as uh, providing leverage to other asset managers. Thank you, Mark. And, and Nate? Uh, afternoon. Uh, my name is uh, Nate Jones. Uh, I manage the fund financing and the leverage management for are new being closed end funds. So, you know, across, you know, just under 60 funds, you know, we utilize around 20 billion of leverage across, uh, you know, a number of different um, uh, leverage vehicles. And, uh, you know, I work in kind of all facets of that management process, including working with our product development teams on, uh, you know, new structures and new products, um, as well as the ultimate sourcing and ongoing leverage management for, uh, for, these, uh, for these vehicles. Look forward to spending some time with you this afternoon. Well, yes, and again, thank you all for joining us today. You know, it's very helpful to have uh, social market leaders to, to be able to opine on the sector and, and give some very good color uh, to what Fitch kind of observes from our, our area as a service provider of ratings. So without further ado, a little bit different from years prior, we're actually going to start off the, the panel with um, a brief discussion of the closing fund criteria. I won't be asking Nate and Mark for their feelings on the changes that underwent in the latter half of 2020, <laughs> because uh, that could be a mixed bag for us. Uh, but, you know, I think it's important in the context of what's gone on most recently in the closed-end fund sector and where Fitch kind of re realigned itself in its criteria, 
uh, in terms of how we rate these leverage products. So anyway, without further ado, I'm gonna let Kim take it from the head and then uh, I'll talk about some of the revisions that were made in 2020. So Kim, go ahead. So here at Fitch, we have been rating closed and fund leverage since the 90s with about 133 funds, fund ratings as of May, which represents about 34 billion in outstanding debt and preferreds. So I can just give a little overview of our process and kind of how we use our criteria to get to ratings. So we look at the overall portfolio of a closed-end fund and look at each underlying security, whether it be equity, bonds, loans, et cetera, and we assess the, the liquidity of the security. We then apply discount factors or haircuts, which then give us discounted asset values, which essentially represent the amount of money we think you could get if you had to sell that asset today. Then we look at it at a higher portfolio level and take the total discounted assets and compare it to the amount of debt outstanding. And as you can see on this slide, we have different discount factors for the different rating levels. So higher ratings have higher discount factors. As you can see, the single A discount factor is higher than the triple B. So for a single A rated fund, the discounted assets have to be greater than the debt using the single A discount factors. So that's essentially how we get our ratings. And then I'll pass it back to Peter to talk a little bit more about the recent changes we had to the discount factors and the overall criteria. Thank you, Kim. Um, so, you know, I think that to start off the discussion of, of some of the criteria changes that, that took place in December, 2020, I think it's important to, to bring up a couple of key, key aspects that uh, we, Fitch, we are aware, despite the move, moves that were made in criteria. Historically, from a creditor perspective, the closed-end fund sector has been a relatively strong asset class. As far as we are aware, there's never been a default on a closed-end fund on its debt or preferred shares, and certainly not since Fish has been rating closed-end fund leverage. This is important to reiterate in light of those criteria changes. Just want to make sure from the top I'm, I'm saying that. Um, you know, so as you see on the slide, that this is a focus on the MLP and equity discount factors uh, following the criteria revision. If you look under the AA uh, column, there's no NC means no credit given. And they, I mean, essentially means that if you had a fund that was entirely compromised of uh, equity and MLPs or just MLPs, the highest debt, debt leverage um, rating you can come out to is a single A. Uh, previously, you could attain ratings as high as AAA. Uh, obviously, that required you know, required significant coverage. Um, but after the criteria revision, those ratings are no longer attainable. Now, you could point to and say, well, this is a reaction to directly only to COVID. Um, but I think it's important to provide some other context uh, in light of the broader Fitch organization. And this has been an ongoing discussion for a while ahead of these criteria changes. Um, and the change here, especially capping a lot of the portfolios or discount factors at a single A rating outcome, actually aligns the closed-end fund criteria more closely with other Fitch criterias that have significant market value exposure. Um, and so, you know, essentially that there's no AAA outcome possible for any closed-end fund leverage um, despite the asset mix. And then AA rating outcomes, you can't see them on the slide, are only applicable to what we define as investment-grade munis. Uh, and then everything else, you know, high-yield munis, the equities, as you see on the slide, um, you know, corporate notes, and whatever the portfolio asset is, the highest rating outcome achievable is a single A now. Uh, and that single A, like I said, is, is relatively in line with other rich pitch criteria with significant market value exposure. Now, obviously the COVID-19 pandemic had, a, had a, an impact on a lot of closed-end fund portfolios. And we're gonna get into that uh, later in the presentation, but I think the MLP sector, as we're aware, 
um, with the COVID-19 pandemic, plus the concurrent uh, oil market disruption had a heavy impact of valuations there. And this is actually the one area where discount factors and futures criteria had to be realigned to adjust for the 45-day worst loss, um, essentially the basis uh, which these discount factors are founded upon. Um, and like I said, all of the discount factors didn't have require a significant realignment um, other than kind of shifting the paradigm in line with other Fitch rating criteria with market value exposure. So now that I get, went through that, and obviously there's a lot of uh, material out there discussing this and that, that criteria change, which can be found on Fitch's website if you want to get some more information there. Um, so I'm going to move on to slide three. Having some issues here with the buttons. Um, so in this slide, I'm actually going to hand it back over to Kim, and she's going to talk about closed-end fund leverage more broadly. And before we dive into the next two slides, which uh, divides out leverage trends across taxable and medium closed-end funds, Kim, take it away. Yeah. So this slide is looking at the overall leverage use in closed-end funds and the leverage ratios, so debt divided by assets. And these funds use leverage to boost income to their investors. Although there are a couple of things that do limit the amount of use that they can use. So first is the 1940 Act, which regulates how much leverage funds can have. And in the chart, you can see the different limits that the 1940 Act has, depending on the type of leverage. Um, and then you have funds have their own documentation where they put their own limits on leverage, which could be different than the 1940 Act. And lastly, to the extent that the funds are rated by rating agencies, rating agencies agencies also have their own limits around testing and asset coverage. So the chart itself, we, we looked at the top 150 closed-end funds and pulled their public financials to get their leverage ratios based on what they reported. Each dot represents its own fund. So you can see that taxable closed-end funds, they are bunched around the high 20s, low 30s leverage um, ratio amount. And munis are a little bit higher with high 30s, low 40s, and just due to the more stable nature of munis themselves. And the different amount of leverage deployed just varies by fund manager and their own risk management practices. Um, they have their own bands that they're comfortable maintaining their leverage around just to stay in line with their own practices. Thank you, Kim. Um, so now I'm finally gonna get the external panelists involved. So my apologies for the, the long-winded criteria, rating agency uh, blurb at the front, but so Nate, um, for, you know, at Nuveen, how do you manage the leverage of, of the funds you oversee? Perfect. Um, well, you know, I think we start with, with the asset class and we really look in into, you know, where are we going to extract the benefit from leverage? And for most of our investment classes, it tends to be fixed income based for, for buying assets on the longer part of the yield curve and, and financing them on the, on the short end. So, you know, look at that aspect. Within that, it, with the asset class segment is also kind of understanding the volatility of the asset class. So, you know, how you might lever a muni strategy is very, very different than how you might manage or, or leverage uh, an EM debt strategy or a senior loan class, then I would look at that. Um, you know, then lastly, I think you, you marry that up with what, what sort of financing options are available. And so, you know, ultimately you kind of marry those things to, together and, uh, you know, put around a framework, I would say that, um, you know, is, is one that, you know, manages not only the current needs, but also the potential volatility and the uh, risk that I go associated with leveraging, you know, including renewal risk of uh, leveraging strategies, but also the volatility of the asset class. Thank you, Nate. And I'm going to actually do a quick spin on to Mark. Um, 
So Mark, when you're looking at closed end funds to provide leverage to, how do you underwrite or, or kind of assess the credit risk of those closed end funds? Uh, thanks, Peter. Um, I think to Nate's point, you start with the asset class, uh, number one. I mean, if we're looking at equities, those are going to be viewed very differently than if we're looking at a portfolio that's maybe high yield portfolio or senior loan portfolio. And then in addition, we're going to look at uh, some of the portfolios now, given the focus on income distribution, where there's a building in of a lot of securitized products. So, you know, what are the asset classes we're looking at, number one? What's the liquidity and volatility? Uh, and in addition, even though uh, we're dealing with closed end funds, what's that price transparency? As we get into some more esoteric investments, we can anticipate that sometimes there's stale pricing concerns and things that go on. And so you, while it's not a paramount concern uh, per se, you do want to have, think have that in your mind. And so, you know, asset class is number one. Um, and, and we try to obviously keep some diversity across, the, across that asset class and portfolio. So we'll look at issuer concentration. Uh, we'll look at sector concentration, right? It's specifically, we can see uh, sectors over time getting hit. I mean, last March, uh, you know, March 2020 was a great example, right, where we have, uh, you know, the COVID hit, and then we have the Russian-Saudi uh, oil crisis. So I, I know a lot of MLP funds were uh, really quite busy at that point in time. So we do want to try to be, uh, even though closed-end funds tend to be thematic, uh, we do want to, you know, also be cognizant of what uh, sector exposures we do have. And then within those sectors, sometimes, you know, how granular do we get? Well, probably depends on that fund composition. And then again, lastly, the, the term, what are we looking at? Do we have, uh, you know, something that's rolling on a 179-day basis, or are we going out a little bit longer to try to lock in rates? I mean, obviously, we're in a period of, of low rates now. And so I think some managers strategically are trying to, uh, you know, create their leverage so that they have both short-term and long-term uh, risks covered. Thank you. And I guess in, in terms of strategically, you know, aligning your, the, the leverage of a closed-end fund, maybe I'm, I'm going to actually rope in some regulation talk real quick because we, we actually bring it up on the slide. How, how is the, you know, the potential SEC changes to how closed-end fund leverage is calculated? Um, how is that kind of impacting how you, how you, position the closed-end fund leverage on the Nuveen funds? Perfect. I, I think you're probably alluding to the new SEC derivatives rule, I, I think, for those that are a little bit more technical, uh, 18F4. Um, yeah, that was that was announced uh, last year, and it's going to become effective uh, in August of 2022. And while it has the name of kind of the derivatives rule, I think we really look at this as, as a leveraging exposure kind of rule. Um, obviously, it takes into account uh, the impact that uh, leverage or exposure a fund can generate from derivatives. But there is a very, uh, you know, a key factor that will, I think, play itself out uh, a little bit more next year, and that's with the impact of uh, funds that utilize uh, a significant amount of reverse repo. I know in taxable funds that tends to be very uh, popular uh, way of financing uh, for some fixed income assets, but also on the municipal side, the use of tender option bonds or, or TOB floaters. Uh, both of those are, uh, you know, obviously provide a, a backbone for leverage for a number of funds, but they aren't considered uh, senior securities under the 40 Act. So as of right now, uh, you have the ability to utilize them, and if they're properly covered, it does not count towards the uh, the asset coverage limits as as the uh, as currently drafted. Um, once the rule becomes into effect, uh, advisors uh, will have the option on a fund by fund basis to elect whether or not to treat. Uh, reverse repos or TOBs as debt-like instruments, so it being incorporated into that 
300% asset coverage limits, or to elect to treat them as derivatives and be subject to, uh, you know, the, the various derivatives and, uh, you know, bar limits on that. Um, what it means for, fund, for, for funds is I would say, you know, those funds that tend to use a little bit more leverage, closer to 33 and a third percent or higher, um, or it has a significant amount of capital, uh, leverage capital that's sourced from that, uh, you know, may either be looking to, to alter those structures and, and one, one way it could be, uh, for those funds to issue, um, you know, a little bit more preferred debt or preferred equity as part of the capital structure. One, to, uh, in essence, kind of eliminate the, uh, treatment of uh, repos or uh, you know TOB floaters in terms of that, that that calculation, or to provide additional headroom or coverage to the, to the extent the fund elects to treat them as derivatives. So more to come in in our place. I think we haven't probably seen this uh, impact itself or being actually transacted just yet, but it's something I think certainly as we look into Q2, Q3 of next year, we'll start to see I think some of that uh, market develop. Thank you, Nate. And Mark, have you, I mean, it could be as simple as a no, yeah, but has there been any kind of discussions with some of the, the closed-end fund advisors that you provide leverage to regarding this derivatives change? Um, yes, Peter. I mean, I would say that we've been talking to funds about it throughout the course of 2020 once, uh, once it was announced. And I think uh, it certainly varies where you go from fund sponsor to fund sponsor. Uh, those that have been traditional users of repo, I still think, are are currently relying on it and they're cognizant of it because there's no requirement to be compliant until August 22. Uh, so I think I think that there's a long glide path that they're viewing, and, and certainly given some of the favorable rates on repo, it is understandable that managers want want to keep financing at those rates. Uh, but um, I think, as as Nate said, that as we go through uh, 2022, I'm sure people are going to start you know, crystallizing how they're going to address these things. Um, you know, at TD, we, we try to really, uh, we service both the taxable and non-taxable funds, and we do it both on, let's say, the repo, TOBS, as well as the preferred shares. So what we've tried to do is kind of harmonize our products so that we have the solutions to really address the different structures that some of the fund managers are going to need to employ uh, to help them take advantage of the rates at the time and also kind of maintain the structural leverage that they need as we move forward. Very interesting. It'll definitely give us something more to talk about next year. I think as uh, as this all comes to play, if, the, if this conference is at the same time, we'll see the shakeout of that pretty quickly. Um, so let me That's actually right. get ahead to the next. Yeah, I'm gonna head to the next slide. Um, and this is actually a good segue, considering you know we were just talking about you know the usage of reverse repo. This slide, um, you know, essentially is a historical look back 15 years, strictly taxable closed-end fund leverage. And you know how much leverage is, was outstanding at any given reporting period. Uh, you know the mix of that leverage, and obviously you can see some trends that begin to play themselves out here. Uh, I mean, I think first and foremost you can see the market cyclicality as a significant impact in, in terms of how closed-end fund leverage ratios, uh, how high they are, how much is outstanding at any given time. 2008-2009. I don't need to, to, I guess, beat that dead horse anymore. But you know, clearly that was a big, a big moment for the market and had far-reaching impacts uh, for taxable close-end funds and how much leverage they have outstanding. Now, probably the next period that you could see that a dip in close-end fund leverage is that 2014 to 2016 timeframe. Um, you know, clearly the the uh, the energy, the uh, stress in the energy market, you know, directly impacted MLPs. Um, you know, fortunately that was only only a part of the market, but clearly, you know, still had a significant enough impact where you saw leverage numbers jump, drop there again. 
Um, and I'm not going to get into 2020, 2021. Kim is going to go into that a bit more detail in a minute. But I would also just kind of notice that beyond just, you know, market cycles or, or market externalities, you see there's other things in play here. Um, you know, in terms of market innovation, you see in, you know, the, the second half of 2008, you know, in conjunction with the global financial crisis, you see ARPs kind of falling out of favor, or, you know, losing their desirability insofar as that they're not making up a large mix of the outstanding closed-end fund leverage. And you see that steadily diminish over time until it's, it's a trace amount in, in terms of the overall uh, exposure for any given reporting period. Uh, and then, you know, I think in terms of, you know, maybe the discussion we just have regarding derivatives, this is again, you know, a market externality, you know, yes, it's on the regulatory side, but where you're gonna see something that is external of how advisors manage their closed-end funds that they have to respond to, and it's gonna change the closed-end fund leverage um, you know, environment, let's say. So I kind of briefly mentioned it before, but Kim, could you just give a, a brief overview of some of the data in this chart and specifically speak about, you know, what we saw in, in early 2020 and coming out of that? Yeah. So in the beginning of 2020, there was a lot of stress in the market due to the COVID stress in March. And we saw a lot of funds having to deliver to maintain their asset coverage. And we even saw MLPs become forced sellers. There was deleveraging across all asset classes. And we also saw funds liquidate or completely delever. Um, and the, the, the decrease in leverage was driven by bank financing and repo, which managers tend to delever first just due to the fact that it's a little quicker to get done in, in times of stress, they go there first. Since the first half of 2020, we've seen leverage slowly start recovering year over year. Um, and that's being driven by repo and bank financing as well, um, just kind of due to the similar reasons I said before. And then as of now in the first half of 2021, the most common leverage we see in taxable close-end funds are bank financing and repo, which is then followed by public preferreds and private preferreds. Thank you, Kim. So I guess with that context, you know, and focusing on the, the right-hand side of the chart, you know, with, with the uh, pandemic and coming out of the pandemic or you know, recovering from the pandemic, let's put it that way. Um, Nate, you know, can you speak to the delever, you know, response in early 2020 and then you know kind of how you're you're man directly how you're managing your closing fund leverage now sure so uh you know obviously some flashbacks of some of the pain of 2020 but um you know i think when we're going through that process and, and especially as we look back on it now i think you know one of the keys that come out of it is communication and you know that communication is, is set up well in advance of any sort of i would say market stress um, you know, the communications that we have with our financing partners uh, on the banking side, the communications that we have within product uh, with our investment teams, um, as well as, uh, you know, other outside or third kind of, uh, you know, party, um, you know, uh, folks uh, like rating agencies or, or um, advisors. So when all of that kind of comes to a head, you know, I think that the thing that we take away from 2020 was how volatile and how fast everything happened, right? So this wasn't a fixed income uh, you know, focused uh, event. This wasn't just purely equities. It was everything all at the same time. And so when we get back to that communication aspect of it, the ability to, you know, have to deleverage, understanding exactly where your pain and threshold and covenant uh, standpoints are, uh, are absolutely critical. Um, and, and as Kim had mentioned, uh, you, you know, you look at what, what can be done and what can be done quickly, right? Obviously, the collapsing of repo and, uh, and credit facilities, no surprise. 
that that was, uh, you know, probably the, the first aspect that uh, a number of uh, advisors had looked to, to deleverage. Whereas preferred, uh, given the notice requirements that are you know, done, the fact that it uh, you know, tends to be a little bit more cumbersome to add leverage back, uh, ultimately are usually left for uh, kind of, I would say, the, the you know, cleaning up process or anything like that. I think equally as important, though, and, and I think some of your other, um, you know, what you'll see in kind of the recovery aspect of it is, you know, while deleveraging was required in some of these asset cases and some of these funds in order to stay within compliance of, 40 Act limits and lender limits, the recovery also required kind of, I would say, a keen insight as to where leverage ratios are, where, you know, new assets can be purchased and financed so that uh, the recovery isn't completely lost as you're, you know, under levered kind of in that appreciating environment. I think it's been, it's been kind of interesting over the last, uh, you know, 18 months. We have been essentially in a rising, uh, you know, valuation market, both uh, in kind of fixed income and equity standpoint. So, you know, I would say the memory, though, of 2020 is very keen in, I would say, shaping product, but also lenders and advisors' uh, mindset, uh, especially as we move forward here. Yeah, it was definitely, um, it was definitely amazing to see the the functionality of closed-end funds to actually delever and, and kind of the amalgamation of regulation and ratings and and man- advisors themselves with their providers. To, to successfully delever in, in an orderly fashion. I mean, again, you know, I said it before, but you know, no one kind of missed a payment or you know was, was excessively breaching. Everyone successfully delivered, and and there was no, you know, it, it was. I mean, given everything going on, it was very orderly. And I'll, actually, I'll turn to Mark. You know, Mark, can, can you kind of speak to and actually being on the front end of it, you know, considering where TD stands in the space, um, your interaction during that time, you know, definitely being a key component of the success of closing funds to delever during those stressful times. Sure. So, um, you know, I think it's been an interesting change from 2014, 2015, where there was a rush to uh, put on long-term preferred shares, uh, for, you know, uh, in anticipation of rising rates. And then, you know, specifically a lot of funds at that point in time got caught offside a bit, especially MLP funds who locked in some preferred shares due to that dislocation and lots of breakage fees. So I think, you know, number one, as Nate mentioned, as we found ourselves in 2020, you're always going to hit the repo and, and the uh, credit lines first to to delever as necessary. Uh, and I also think that you know a lot of funds out there had less on the preferred shares, especially long dated long dated ones, uh, given the lessons of uh, 2014, 2015. Um, communication was key, whether it was on our muni uh, funds or the taxable funds. Um, again, the taxable are cross assets, so. We certainly had our hands fun, uh, whether it was looking at the loans, the high yield bonds or the equities uh, and obviously the, you know, munis too. And, you know, that was really the number one thing, right? Like making sure that we're in communication uh, with, with our fund managers. I think a lot of them were proactive um, and, and certainly stepping down leverage and, and, and not really getting themselves caught offside. But, um, you know, we partner with folks that, that we're looking to grow a business with, grow a relationship with. And so I think, having that communication leading into it and then you know being in daily communication throughout it that gives our our folks internally our risk managers a lot of comfort that you know we know what's happening on their side we know the thought process and so uh you know it it assuages any concern that uh you know things are going to get worse right that we're partnering to make sure it gets better um and then similarly with such a fast recovery um can you be there now to make sure that they have the ability to hit that target leverage ratio uh, that they're looking to get back up to, right? I mean, certainly spreads blew out from a funding perspective for a lot of banks. And 
I think, you know, some, uh, you know, funds maybe had a challenging time acquiring financing, especially if they were caught in a renewal process. And so I think, um, you know, that's what helps in partnering with the bank with, you know, kind of a stable balance sheet and things of that nature that's maybe not doing everything off uh, so that you can, you know, ensure yourself that you can weather the storms and kind of partner as, as recovery happens, because, you know, that's a key moment to maybe get things at a, at a depressed price where you see some upside. Definitely, definitely. And I guess just I'm, I'm going to add one more wrinkle in here. Uh, obviously, there's definitely some changes on the horizon for closing taxable closing fund leverage, especially given the derivative discussion we already had. Um, but Nate, are you seeing any kind of new developments in terms of um, types of products uh, on the taxable closing fund leverage side? Yeah, so I mean, I, I obviously, I think the development on, on the preferred side will be the big thing for, for going forward. But, you know, what we've seen thus far is, I would say, probably more, uh, you know, uh, capital structures that have multiple types of leverage forms, right? So marrying the reverse repos uh, with credit facilities, um, focusing on asset segments. Um, you know, a number of strategies that have come out have been kind of a little bit more go-anywhere, multi-asset. That's ones where, you know, there'll be pockets of ability to finance segments of that at, at much cheaper levels with much, uh, you know, I would say uh, longer term structures than, you know, an asset class or a fund that has a singular kind of focus on strategy. So I would say that's probably the, uh, you know, one of the things that we've already seen occur and uh, probably will likely continue to see that uh, move forward um, in, in 2022 here. And I guess from Mark, Mark from your side, I mean, you know, you, we kind of already referenced some of the, the taxable closing fund leverage products that you offer, but can you speak to exactly, um, you know, what TD offers or participate in in terms of taxable closing fund leverage? And, you know, has that been, it has been relatively dynamic coming out of the pandemic? Um, I would say that, well, first of all, you know, what we're trying to do at TD is really provide uh, leverage across uh, the capital structure, whether it's, you know, senior debt, senior secured notes or the preferreds. Um, you know, we have the ability, we have a, a, a growing prime brokerage business. And so rehypothecation is certainly always an option, just as repo is. And we want to be there for that short term financing to help our clients take advantage of it. But, uh, you know, we're also uh, very active in the credit facilities and then the preferreds uh, as well. So we will, you know, buy those and, and take those on balance sheet on a, you know, kind of a strategic basis. Uh, and same thing on our on our muni side. Uh, you know, we're participants, uh, you know, we, we do the top structures, we do VRDPs, we do VMTPs. And so it's really ensuring that we can be there because we know that the needs are changing. And so we need to kind of, you know, we can't just be focused on the long term or, or just short term financing, uh, you know, but we do need to have the tools to be able to participate because when, when uh, you know, someone's in Nate's shoes and they're looking at their leverage structure, they need to be able to harmonize between products. And so if we can do that uh, from a one institution perspective, I think then we're offering the client the value of, of being able to get, you know, one team focused on their leverage structure. Definitely. And you brought up Muni, so you gave me a good segue to the next slide. So perfect. <laughs> uh, well, no problem. That was the cue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So next slide here. Same, same idea here, but focusing on municipal closed-end funds. Um, you know, again, 15-year look back, um, but obviously very different in terms of kind of the cyclicality and, and how these leverage ratios have kind of moved over time. Clearly still global financial crisis, 2008, 2009, you still saw a drop, uh, obviously not as, as severe as, as that you saw on the taxable side, but then you see some pretty relative stability over time. I mean, you know, there were some notable increases in 2013, coming out of 2016, 
and then obviously we, we had the COVID pandemic and um, another slight dip, but I, I'm not going to talk about that too much. Uh, Kim is actually going to bring that up in a minute. Um, so, you know, definitely, you know, again, that, that, that kind of theme of stability in terms of municipal closed-end fund leverage uh, has always been kind of a, a, an ongoing thing over time. Um, and obviously, again, you have the same kind of uh, in market innovation that, that comes into play here, right? So I, I think two years ago when, when Greg was presenting this, um, you know, MFPs with the big discussion point, the, on, the, the formation of them and how the transition and refinancing in MFPs was kind of the, the going theme of uh, municipal closing funds. And you still see the MFPs being utilized uh, in the capital stacks of closing, municipal closing funds today. Um, so with that, um, you know, Kim, what are, we, what are we seeing in terms of closing, municipal closing fund leverage more recently uh, coming out of the COVID pandemic and, and into 2021? Yeah. So as as Peter just said, you know, municipal closed-end funds are more stable than the taxable closed-end funds, and this is just due to the more stable nature of municipal bonds in general. We did see some deleveraging in the first half of 2020, um, and this was kind of driven by TOBs and bank financing, kind of similar to the taxable, where bank financing drove the deleveraging in the in the space. Um, and we can see that leverage is starting to slightly go up as well. And that as of first half of 2021, VRDPs, VFMTPs, and TOBs continue to be primary sources of leverage. And you know, as Peter said, we still see MFPs having a, a stable share of the leverage that municipal closing funds have. Thank you. Yep. So, you know, uh, similar kind of questions to the taxable, you know, obviously there's a lot of these things are different in terms of when you're managing a closed-end fund, but I mean, Nate, is there any kind of a difference when you're met, how you manage closed-end fund leverage for municipal, municipal funds versus taxable? Yeah, I mean, I think we alluded to this during kind of the deleveraging in 2020. Um, you know, there are a number of steps that are required to actually redeem preferred stock as opposed to paying down a revolving credit facility or collapsing repos. Um, so you know you tend not to get those smaller movements. They tend to be larger movements if you're going to be conducting them. That's why I think when we went through uh, the, the stress in 2020, you saw managers collapse uh, TOBs uh, there as opposed to redeeming preferred stock. But I think one thing that's kind of interesting with your slide here and, and kind of maybe highlights this is, is that you know when you look back, uh, you know, with the ARPS crisis or with the ARPS period, you had option rates and you had TOBs. But as you move further on the right-hand part of the uh, uh, the image there are just a number of different, you know, boxes or a number of different types of structures, right? And, and where I think the, the evolution on this preferred within the muni segment has really kind of taken off is, is, is that, well, these are preferreds that are kind of designed for certain asset segments or certain kind of leverage capital segments, right? So you talk about the VRDP, that's being one that's been primarily sold uh, to money fund or short duration investors that require liquidity from a bank as a backstop. But when we look at the VF, uh, VMTPs, the MFDs, and those segments, those are you know you know held and purchased directly by banks or other institutional investors. And the innovation, I would say, in that um, you know different types has largely been well you know once you have the preferred, uh, what are ways to refinance it or to keep the leverage outstanding, but be able to pivot into different types of structures. And so and I think we'll still continue to see some of that uh, moving ahead with the. Uh, with the muni funds, um, but uh, you know, certainly a different kind of a wrinkle or element than uh, we're kind of accustomed to on the taxable side. Thank you. 
So I, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to beat up on Mark too much. I know you focus on the taxable side, um, <laughs> but you know, I guess, you know, I, what was kind of the, you know, much if you know, it might be largely similar, but you know, during the COVID pandemic, you know, was it a lot of bank financing movement? Um, you know, how how is you know, and how is TD been kind of looking at muni closed in funds in terms of the like kind of kinds of leverage that they take out? Well, you're right. I mean, my focus is really on the taxable side. My colleague runs uh, the non-taxable side. However, uh, we work pretty closely together. I would say that really uh, our view on municipal leverage is, is somewhat the same on taxable, right? We're looking at, uh, you know, what type of, uh, you know, assets are in there, IG versus non-IG, you know, what type of municipalities are we, are we dealing with? you know, healthcare, schools, you know, and making sure that we have adequate diversity, right? I mean, and, and that's kind of the hallmark of that to ensure you just, uh, you know, have that portfolio construction to present any type of, uh, you know, kind of protection against the hiccup in a particular uh, sector. So I think that's number one. Uh, two, uh, you know, we, I think your chart's pretty illustrative of what we're seeing uh, as far as the muni market goes. And as I mentioned, we're, we are uh, kind of involved across those products. Uh, Going back to the you know the crisis again, communication was key. I know that um, you, you know certainly we're the sixth largest bank in North America, so again strong balance sheet, double A minus, really really helpful in these times. So it allowed us to you know certainly gain some market share at that particular point, um, you know from certain managers that that needed funding, uh, but it allowed us to also be stable, you know dealing with the BRDPs and things like that. You know there there's certainly some stressors, but staying in communication with our clients allowed us to uh, have an understanding where things were going uh, and, and how they were managing through that so that we could kind of, you know, be comfortable with, you know, where's the inflection point and, and do we need to be concerned? So I think, uh, again, they somewhat mirror each other, obviously different asset classes, but the approaches are, approaches are similar. And as you look forward, you know, innovation, I think to, to Nate's point, you, you think about, uh, what's the structure of the financing? And, and you know, every, every bank has its regulations, right? And certainly some are country specific, but I think making sure that, uh, you know, we can accommodate what uh, the fund needs when you're going out. Is it short, something really short dated? Uh, is it a liquidity provider? So there's a backstop or do we need to do something a little bit longer term? And, uh, and how do we get creative in doing that so that, you know, we're accommodating what we need to do internally as well? Excellent. And I guess, you know, I mean, have you, have you seen any kind of you know, along the same lines of innovation, you know, have you, have you kind of heard it, heard anything on the street in terms of, you know, new, new innovation types, given the stability of the municipal closed and fund sector, you know, as it's shown over time, uh, have there been other kind of thoughts around, you know, other types of leverage that these types of closed and funds could utilize in the future? No, I think, uh, uh, you know, can't, oh, sorry, Nate. No, no, no please, go ahead. Oh no, I was I, I was gonna I was gonna defer to you on that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd largely say it's also taking into account uh, environment and, and and where yields are, right? So, uh, given the compression where we are on, on short yields, um, obviously it opens up uh, less of a discrepancy between you know what would traditionally be a taxable type financing credit facility repo versus in a more normalized state where uh, you want to be able to pass along that tax exemption benefit that the uh, underlying assets are earning. So that mix between debt and preferred is there. Uh, but I would also say, you know, I think when, when you look at a lot of these strategies and, and pretty much most of these closed end fund strategies, leverage tends to be a perpetual part of the overall framework or plan of the fund. Whereas a lot of these instruments, even the preferreds have shorter tenors. 
and the way you can uh, enhance or I would say, um, you know, uh, improve structure is, is largely around being able to facilitate that, you know, short to long aspect, whether it be uh, more convenient or, or cheaper, um, you know, frictional costs in terms of renewing and refinancing, I think, uh, is where you'll see uh, you'll see kind of continued evolution with this. Definitely, and you know, I think with even um, you know the, the VRDPs are, are a significant portion of the, the capital stack. I think you know, we've kind of talked about taxable side, kind of the derivative changes that are going to be you know occurring in August 2022. You know, there is also another big question mark out there: um, money market fund reform. You know, what does that kind of mean for for Prime, and and where does that shake out? I think there's a lot of there's still some headwinds out there that are kind of outside the the scope of, of a closed-end fund advisor, even a closed-end fund leverage provider. Um, I think coming up in the next year, few years, who knows? You know, the, the, no one's kind of really determined when the foot is going to fall. Let's say, but uh, I think there's definitely more room, more opportunities for for advisors and, and providers to get creative and think about how to, like you said, perpetually maintain those leverage those leverage ratios, um, with, either with a new product or utilizing an existing product in a different way. Yeah, but, certainly. I think that's uh, we'll see more and more. So, <laughs> yeah. It, it, it definitely is not boring out there. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, but I think maybe everyone could use a break for, for a couple of years. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt, but we are one minute past our time. So if we can. Uh... All right. Well, so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry about that, Nicholas. I actually, I actually no worries, lost No worries. <laughs> um, the, the last slide was just to talk about the devaluation and recovery, but, you know, obviously um, it's pretty apparent based on, you know, kind of the discussions. And if anybody's been involved in closing funds, they, they know how the market has recovered. Um, again, thank you, Nate, Mark, Mark, for your time. You know, it's been really great having you, Kim, great job. Uh, and, you know, I, again, you know, we appreciate the opportunity to do this and uh, I will cede the floor or the, the, the Zoom, I should say. <laughs> Well, thank you to everybody. Thank you, Peter, for the great moderation. And thank you to all the panelists. It has been a, a great panel. Thank you very, very much. And next year, we will do it hopefully in person. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all again.